Good morning, and we have the honour and pleasure of being joined by one of Australia's finest when it comes to real estate royalty, Michael Pallier. Uh, he's not a stranger on our shores because I believe, Michael, you have made a debut at the EA Masters uh, with Peter Knight. Um, I think it might have been last year or the year before, possibly. Um, yes. So the UK audience will, will be familiar. But um, those of you that don't know Michael, uh, 62 properties according to domain sold up to 30th of June 2021. This is where no, we checked. It's actually more than that. Yeah, it's more than because I looked at realestate.com and I think I've got over 70 sales on there. I've okay. definitely done more than 70 sales in the last 12 months. Fan, fantastic. I, I fantastic. From, and, the, from the start of 2020, I've yeah. sold about um, in pounds, it's be about. $400 million worth of property since since the start of 2020. 400 million pounds worth. Wow. Wow. Yeah, That's an astronomical, astronomical, astronomical figure. They're suggesting your average sale price is around $7 million um, with the uh, highest sale price. More, well, if you work out uh, in pounds, if it's, if it's 400 million pounds and it's 70 sales, it'd be 400 divided by 70 whatever that comes in at yeah cool yeah I, but um, one of my sales last year was 95 million for one house so that's like 50 wow. million uh, 45 million pounds so that put my average wow. right up absolutely absolutely and you started in the industry in 1997 yes i did september 1997 i was working for rolls royce and mercedes i spent 14 years there I was actually a motor mechanic and I used to work in Crewe in England for a year in 1988-89. My mother's actually English, so I have a have a very, very warm feeling towards England and English people. So I went over to the factory and I worked at the Rolls-Royce and Bentley factory in Crewe and I lived there for a year back in 88-89. It was just wonderful. Fantastic. So, um, and you've spent some time with Mercedes-Benz as well as Rolls-Royce? Yes, I spent 14 years all up with uh, combined with Mercedes and Rolls-Royce in Sydney. So I spent seven years in the workshop building, you know, fixing the cars and then seven years in sales. So what was it for you then that got you into real estate? So it's a bit of a change of, uh, change of career from selling, from selling cars to where cars potentially get parked, but what, what was it that triggered that change of industry and change of career? Yeah, so one, it was quite unusual. I had a client that was buying a Mercedes S500 from myself. I was the number one salesman in Australia for Mercedes-Benz cars. At that time, I was selling about 105 cars a year uh, back in, you know, 1997. That was quite a lot of Mercedes back then because Mercedes-Benz were a lot more expensive back in 1997 than they are now. And one of the clients was buying a top of the range Mercedes from me and he'd just come back from America. And he said to me, I'm getting better service buying this car than I got buying my house. And he bought the most expensive house in Australia that year. He paid $9.35 million for this house in Sydney. And that, that was, you know, 25 years ago. So he said to me, why don't you sell houses? You know, all the same people. And he said, it's all a people's game, this game, just dealing with people. And he said, you'd be good at doing this, so you should go and sell houses. And I thought, that's a good idea. And his wife was in the car with me, and she said the same thing. She said, you should do that. So I thought, that's a great idea. So by the end of that year, 1997, 
I got into selling houses in the eastern suburbs and never looked back. It's been great. It's been Fantastic. 24 years now. Fantastic. Um, so what would, obviously, I'm sure you work amongst the team. Um, so what's what's the successes? Because a lot of the UK are now looking to Australia for, again, success leaves clues. So they're looking to Australia as to how they can learn and grow and become better versions of themselves. What What's yes. the key to working as part of a successful team? Oh, yeah. So it's highly regulated. In Sydney, the market is very is regulated by the government. So you've got, there's a government organisation called the Department of Fair Trading. So it means that you must abide by their regulations. That's legally the way it must be done. And they're very strict. So I like that because it lifts the standard that an agent must work at. And you have a, have a real estate licence and you can lose your licence if you don't work in accordance with Department of Fair Trading regulations. So I think number one thing is you've got to be very ethical in the way you conduct yourself. I think you've got to make sure that you're looking to stay long term in the industry. So don't just do a deal for the sake of doing a deal. Do a deal on the basis that someone will come back to you in the future. So either the buyer or the seller will want to do business with you again. And uh, the third thing is, as you said, it's very important to have a team around you to you know, be able to give good service to people and be professional. So I have four full-time people that work with me on my team and we give people really top level of service. Because I came from a background of Rolls-Royce and Mercedes, that's all I've really known, is to give people good service and we just try to offer them really great service. So we help them to get the houses ready often. You know, we'll go in there and often we'll repaint the house, we'll put new carpet in, we'll put display furniture in. Uh, we'll get everything ready. We'll get the swimming pools compliant. We'll get the gardener there. And we go through a full detail of the house for the owner at no charge. We don't charge the owner for our time to do that. They only have to pay for the trades that do it. And um, it's just, we just do everything for them. And then we prepare the houses to a very high standard. Then we market them to a very high standard. So we market both locally and internationally because i'm sotheby's i can get a lot of exposure on sotheby's international websites and things like that um, we use actually a pr company in london um, i think it's called four communications we use them a lot if we've got a significant property and then they will take that property to different publications around the world you know wall street journal bbc online um, the Financial Times, they'll put it out there with a story and we can increase the exposure for that property and it costs the owner a very small amount to pay the, the PR company. So we get a lot of exposure and we sell a lot of properties to overseas people. We do a lot of business with the Chinese market. My wife was born in Shanghai and she speaks fluent uh, Mandarin, Cantonese, Shanghainese. So that helps me greatly. And my nephew Spencer's on my team and he's the same. He was born in Shanghai. So We've got a thing called WeChat, and we have uh, over 3,000 people on our WeChat database. I don't know if everyone's familiar with WeChat, but it's the medium that the Chinese people deal through. It's a little bit like their Facebook. Yeah. And, um, so that means that we every week we're sending out to 3,000 high net worth Chinese that have been to look at our properties over the years details of the new properties that are coming onto the market and we'll do a lot of business with the Chinese because China is very strong in uh, Sydney. It's a very strong Chinese community. I think it's probably quite strong in London too, I think, isn't it? Chinese market. Yeah, uh, certainly there's there's some certainly overseas investment going in and on in different parts of the UK. I think Manchester has been since the investment there to turn it with the media city and 
the media companies relocating there. Um, but no, I mean, that's, that's interesting that you, you're kind of using the mediums there for like the Chinese, using their version of WhatsApp essentially, which is WeChat um, for, the, for, for those that aren't sure what WeChat is. So you, you talked then about the long-term relationship and, and the, the repeat clients. What are the kind of the key activities that Severbiz and, and your team engage in to keep clients up to date with what's going on with their with their home and the market? Yeah, so we keep in contact with them regularly through the Chinese, as I mentioned, through WeChat. Plus, we email our clients on a regular basis results of properties that we've sold and any new properties that are coming up. We don't bombard them with too much information because they can get very tired of that. But we just try to show them relevant sales that have occurred and um, sales that might be of interest to them. We just make sure we're in front of them and we're giving them information that they may like to look at on a regular basis. Uh, Michael, thank you for that. Can I ask a question? Because one of the things that I've noticed in the UK especially is that the majority of agents don't have a keep in touch policy with people that buy through them, um, full stop. And I think it's Mercedes or one of the car companies have a fantastic keep in touch policy. So yeah. in Australia, you know, one, what did you learn from Mercedes when it comes to keeping in contact with people that bought a car through you and how have that that's translated into, you know, what you're doing now um, with people? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Mercedes Benz, I found back, you know, 24, 25 years ago, gave us amazing training. They used to take us away and they would, there was a guy called Joe Verdi from America and they'd play his tapes when we go away, videotapes, and he was great. And also the other one was um, an American sales trainer called um, Zig Ziglar, who I thought was phenomenal. I mean, if you get a chance to listen to the Zig Ziglar tapes, he just gives you the full roadmap to be successful in sales. And his is all about that long-term approach, keeping in contact with people. So yeah, Mercedes-Benz very much into keeping in contact with clients and um, having a database and keeping in touch because i mean you take a lot of time to leave a good impression with a client there are so many clients well for example the person that told me to get into real estate 25 years ago um last year i sold his father's house that was the one that i sold for like 45 million pounds so he's still a client that i deal with to this day 25 years later so it's you know if i didn't keep in contact with them boy the amount of business i would lose out on Nearly all of my businesses repeat or referral business, and a lot of them are people that I used to service their cars when I was a motor mechanic. I've known them that long. But I work in an area where people don't tend to leave that area. That's a narrow peninsula um, called the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and it's only a limited number of houses and apartments there, flats there. So people, once they're there, they tend to stay there. So that's your farming area, and it's very important to keep in touch. You must keep in touch with them. What do you do every year? Do you make anniversary calls? Do you offer annual health checks? No, I don't do that. No, I just make sure I'm relevant. We have a newspaper called the Wentworth Career Newspaper that um, goes to the front door of every person. It's about 50,000 people it goes to every week. And uh, we pay to advertise in that Wentworth Career Newspaper. So I spent £400,000 advertising my clients properties there last year but that's paid for by the owners of the properties 
And um, that means that all my clients that live in that area every week are getting page after page of properties that we're representing with our names on it. So that keeps us very relevant. And I don't do things like birthday anniversaries or anything like that because I think people get a little bit tired of that. Um, I just try to keep them updated with properties that sell and anything relevant that they might want to know. But people have a big interest in property in Sydney, so it's not hard to keep in touch with them. You know, if you're an insurance salesperson or something like that, it's a lot harder. But we're, we're offering them something that they find of interest, so it's very easy to stay relevant and keep in touch with them, you know. I think you've got to be very active in this industry. You can't, you can't lose your profile because your profile keeps going. It's like getting a big wheel rolling, you know. Once a big wheel, a big wheel's hard to get rolling. It's hard to push it and get the momentum. But once it starts rolling, it's hard to stop it. It just keeps on going. So I've always taken the view that I have to be relevant. I have to continue to keep getting results, and I have to be in front of my clients, showing them I'm always getting results. Now I've consistently done that now for 24 years, and it just keeps on rolling. And because I've got the PAs that work with me, the four PAs, we've got a machine going and we've just got it going all the time. It just never stops. So one of the things I actually loved, I listened to your story um, when you were at ARIC and you're speaking to Tom Panas and you were yes. talking about, I think, um, one of the Packers. And, um, yeah, that was sold... James Packer, James Packer. So he was, his father was the wealthiest person in Australia. His name was Kerry Packer. People may have heard of him. Yeah, uh, he spent a lot of money. Yeah. He spent a lot of money in the casinos gambling in um, England, I think, back in the day. Kerry Packer did. So Kerry Packer owned the largest television station in Australia called Channel 9 Network. And he was a media mogul. So he died uh, when he was about 68 years old, which is about probably 13 or 14 years ago now. And he had a son and a daughter. So his son inherited the empire. And when Kerry Packer died, he was the wealthiest person in Australia. So James Packer, his son, built this incredible house um, in a place called Vaucluse, and he wanted to sell the house. Now, he had bought a less expensive house from myself or his girlfriend at the time about three years before that. And um, it wasn't a very, it was a form, it was a, what would it be, two million pound house. And I sold them that house. And then what had happened when I sold that house, his girlfriend called me, or her PA called me just after she bought it. And she said, you're not going to believe this. We're having a birthday party for James tonight. And he's going to be here with all of his family and friends. And she said, the toilet seat cracked on the toilet in the house. She said, can you believe this? The PA rang me. And she said, the party's about to start in three hours. What are we going to do? We can't have people sitting on a broken toilet seat. So I thought, what am I going to do? Luckily, because I was a mechanic, I still had the tools in the back of my car. So I wasn't far from the house. I said, look, can I come over? I think I can fix the toilet seat. So she said, come on over. So I raced over and there were balloons on the ceiling and, you know, it was all ready to go to the party. I looked at the toilet seat. Sure enough, there's a big crack right through the middle of the toilet seat. So I unbolted the toilet seat and I ran down to the local hardware store with the seat and I matched another one up. I raced back to their house and I screwed the new toilet seat back on just before the guests were about to arrive. And then I took off with the old toilet seat, threw it in the back of my car. And um, I got this amazing, amazing um, call the next day from the PA. And she said, oh, Erica is so happy that you fixed the toilet seat. She will never, she'll never forget this, Michael. I promise you she'll never forget this. I said, look, I'm only fixing the toilet seat. You don't have, you know, don't have to go too far overboard with it. And, um, and sure enough, three years later, 
they decided they wanted to sell this massive, you know, $40 million house that they had, 40 million pound house they had in Vaucluse. And uh, I got a call from their manager and they said, oh, the Packers, they remembered you fixing the toilet seat for them. They want you to sell the house. And and luckily, I, the first person I took through bought it for like 40 million pounds. And it was just amazing. So that particular house had the new toilet seats that flip up as soon as you walk in. You know, they stand to attention. So they sort of went next, next level in toilet seats in that next three-year period. Okay. <laughs> and in fact, Erica said that her son was not living in the real world because he went out to the airport, their little boy, and he said, Mummy, I need to use the bathroom. And she was there and she couldn't take him in because it was the men's toilet. And he ran back out again. He said, Mummy, Mummy, the, the toilet's broken. I can't use the toilet. She said, what's wrong? And he said, it didn't, it, didn't stand to, it didn't stand to attention when I walked in there. And she said, they don't all stand to attention. So, yeah, she said, I had to get him to live in the real world. But they were great clients to deal with. I mean, you know, I love the story there. And, and, you know, you were talking at the start about the customer service um, yeah. and, you know, what does good service looks like? And, you know, I think that's just going the extra mile and making a difference. So have yeah. you got any any similar stories that trump that one? Because that's a no, great story. Things, just things happen all the time. So what happened? I love cars that are, you know, reliable and well-made. So I bought two of these Lexus, hybrid Lexus cars. I don't know if any agents have got those, but the, You've got, do you have Uber in London, in England? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so we have lots of Uber in Australia, but something I hadn't realised, the Uber drivers drive almost exactly the same car that I drive. And because <laughs> I drive around, I've normally got a tie on. The only reason I'm not wearing a tie tonight is because we're in lockdown and I haven't had to wear my tie today because we can't go into the office because of this virus. So what happened? I've got these two Lexus, one silver and one's black. And every time, like now, I've pulled over to talk to you, I spend my whole day on the phone pulling over talking. I have people keep coming up and trying to open the door of my car. And they, and they, they pull the things, like, get in, they want to get in the car, boom, 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 with the door handle. But I'm thinking, I'm not an Uber driver. I'm not in Uber. So this famous chef one day, I had my door unlocked, and I was I pulled into this car park where there's this fancy restaurant in uh, Rose Bay, Sydney. It's called Catalina Restaurant. Saturday afternoon after I finished all my inspections, I was updating all my owners. I've got the car unlocked. And this famous um, chef called Neil Perry, um, not Neil Perry, sorry, um, Luke Mangan, Luke Mangan, he hops into the back of my car without me knowing with his wife and his friend jumped in the front seat and his friend's wife hopped in the back seat. Before I knew it, I had four people sitting in my car. And funny enough, I knew where he lived. He lives in Balfour Road, Bellevue Hill. And um, he said to me, I think he'd been drinking a bit at this restaurant. He said, driver, um, like 85 Balfour Road, Bellevue Hill. And I thought, I've got two choices here. I either turn around and tell him, look, I'm not an Uber driver. Or I just get in the car and take him up there. So I just did the later. And I just, I just, I just hopped in the car. I just uh, stayed in the car. I pulled in the drive. I drove him up five minutes up the road to their house. I dropped them off. And he said, thank you, driver. Very good service. He hopped out of the car and I've never seen him again. <laughs> so my advice is don't buy a car that looks like an Uber car if you're a real estate agent and you're wearing a tie all the time because it is terrible. I nearly dragged a lady up the road the other night. She wouldn't let go of the door handle. And I was, I was <laughs> it took off and she's like still holding on to the handle trying to get into the car. Oh, that's an absolute, that's an absolute classic. Now, I think over here you'd have to drive a Toyota Prius uh oh, yes. to, be, to be similar to an, an uber driver not being stereotypical of uber drivers over here so um what does um so you've 
you talked about the training at, at Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, um, that was and, great. And um, also, the big thing about selling cars taught you how to close a deal because, you see, that's what an agent learns, needs to know. It's not just about being nice to people. You have to know how to, what to say, what not to say, and when to pull the order form out and when to get the deal closed. That's really important in sales because if you can't close the deal, you just it's non-productive activity. It's what we call non-dollar productive activity. So that's something I learned selling cars because we used to sell so many cars. You just learned when a person was ready to buy and when yeah. to pull the order out. That guy, Joe Verdi, I don't know if it would still be on there, but he taught that a lot and so did Zig Ziglar. Yeah. So so transferring that into Sotheby's, what, what do you and your team use to keep your skills sharp and make sure you're always a step ahead. Um, so what kind of training is going on on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis? And and who who, who is it that you turn to um, to, yeah, to well, help? Um, Josh, Josh Vegan, he's very good with myself and the staff. And, and you know Josh Vegan, I think, from yeah. to London as well. And Tom Panos is very good. And also we do a um, Zoom meeting. I do a Zoom meeting with the team I work with every day at 2 o'clock. And we just run through the basics, make sure we've covered all of the the items. You know, I had a sale um, of a property this year. It sold for like five million pounds. And I had that property on the market late last year and I was getting interest at about four million pounds. So I said to the owner, why don't we put a tenant in there and rent it out? So I'm feeling the market's going to pick up next year in 2021. You may get a higher price. So he said, okay, let's do that. He's an investor. And a chap that had looked at the property last year in November called me out of the blue and he said to me, what's happened to that property? And he'd off like four million pounds for it. And the first thing I said to him was that they put a tenant in there and the owner's not selling it anymore. He's kept it as a long-term investment. And then I was going to hang up. I was going to say thanks for the call. I'll see you later. Because I thought he's only going to pay four million pounds anyway and the owner wouldn't sell for that. And uh, basically, and then I thought to myself about my training back at Mercedes-Benz. I thought they had a saying, you always must, you must ask for the order. So when you go to list a property or you go to sell a property, you've always got to ask the question, I think, you know, would you like to go ahead? Because sometimes they say, yes, they would like to go ahead, even though you didn't think they would say it. And it creates a sale. So I was about to hang up with this person. And I thought, no, no, I better ask him for the order. And I said, look, before I go, I just want to confirm what price would you pay for the house? And he said, for example, oh, I'd pay five million pounds. So he actually had increased in his mind by about a million pounds, the price he'd pay for the house. So I tried to not act surprised. And I said, I repeated to him, I said, I just want to confirm this before I ring the owner. So you will buy the property for five million pounds um, with an eight week settlement and a 10% deposit. And I said, and you'll take it with the tenant in there that's in there for another two years. He said, yeah, I'll take it on that basis. So I rang the owner and the owner said, yes, fine, let's do it. And we did the sale and he, and he bought it. So if I had just hung up by telling him that the owner wouldn't sell, I wouldn't have got that sale. And it would have still been rented and wouldn't have sold. So just you just have to be on top of the game all the time and always asking for the order, you know. 100%. So what, what tips would you get to, you know, that one obviously was quite easy. You didn't have to negotiate with him. What tips would you get to get your buyers up? So, you know, if that was a normal conversation and let's say the yeah. property was on for, you know, 4.2 million and he offered four 
how would you try and get that extra two hundred thousand or maybe more? Well, it depends what kind of market you're in. You see, at the moment we're in a rising market in Sydney. It's been a very strong market. Is it the same in London at the moment in England? Yeah, it's crazy. Really, isn't that yeah. amazing? I think it's similar all around the world because the interest rates are so low now. So if you're in a rising market, it's very easy because if they don't buy it now, in six months' time, it could be more. So that's actually a bit of a dream for an owner. But I find in a rising market, the difficult thing is keeping the owner's expectations in like in check because a lot of the owners have just gone so high on their prices now and unrealistic. So it's a balancing act when you're selling a property. When you were selling a car, we had a price from Mercedes-Benz that they would sell it for, and all they needed to do was get a buyer to buy it for the price the Mercedes would sell it for. With a house, it's a moving thing. So it's an emotional thing with a buyer, uh, with a buyer and a seller. And often it's just about being a matchmaker and bringing it together with the buyer and the seller. So at the moment, it's not difficult to get a buyer to pay more because it's that fear of missing out. Um, and in other markets, when the market's contracting, it's a lot more challenging and it's more a matter of, I think, the owner then becoming realistic and meeting the expectation of the buyer. At the moment, it's the buyer meeting the expectation of the owner, and, you know. So it just depends where you are in the cycle. But it's all about being a matchmaker. 100%. Totally, totally agree. So what about difficult conversations with vendors? And one of the things here at the moment in the UK, sadly, it's a race to the bottom with fees with some agents. Yep. So, you know, there's, as you said, there's plenty of buyers out there there's a shortage of properties at the moment so agents yeah. are, dro are dropping their excuse the language pants to yeah. um, just to take the property on because they know they they will have a buyer there what yeah, can, they, what can agents be either. doing to um you know hold their to fees value. yeah and add value. yeah well i think there's a point that an owner i don't think an owner it depends on each owner but most owners are quite fair i find and they don't want to screw the last cent out of the agent but then you do get a certain number that want to get the best deal they can which is fair enough and it is very competitive so i think i think the owner's got to be very comfortable with who they're dealing with too and that can add a bit of value you can probably get a bit higher commission if they feel comfortable working with you and also you have to differentiate yourself so for example i, I have the ability to get into the chinese market and a lot of expats from the overseas market through Sotheby's. So people will sometimes go with us for that reason. And that's my point of differentiation. Whereas um, if you just work for a, you know, a one owner agency and you can't offer anything better, well, what else can you do? I mean, if, if you can only compete on fees, I suppose. So you've got to make sure that you've got a point of differentiation to try and add value always. It's all about adding value for the owner, I think. And if they can perceive that you can potentially get them a higher price, they'll potentially pay more commission, I think. But it is difficult in this market because, as you say, it's not that hard to get buyers. And a lot of owners are very savvy and they understand that. So sometimes a hot market like this doesn't work as well for an established agent. And it works better for a younger agent that's getting into the market or a newer agent getting into the market and just wants to get a sale, you know. So the markets change, they, you know, they go up, they go down, you just have to weather it and keep good, giving good service and keeping a good name. And if you do that, you'll get at least your fair share of business. And you just have to be positive. I always think back, you know, my first sale, how did I get my first listing? How did I get my first sale away? And if you can repeat that and offer the really good service and be professional, 
it's a big market, isn't it? England's a huge market, so there are lots of people, and there's lots of potential to do well long long term. I think and you have to just stay positive, you know, and keep a good name. Yeah, no, and I think you kind of uh, hit the nail on the head there with a strong market. It's easy for new entrants to come in; they'll undercut you on fees. But it's that old Warren Buffett quote: "When the tide goes out, you eventually see who's been swimming naked, and they're the ones that." And they're not, and they're the ones that aren't going to be around long term. And like you indicated right at the beginning, it's about relationships being ethical, and and building that rapport and that trust. Um, and it is about that repeat business. And and uh, I mean, Josh Vegan make, makes a valid point. Uh, in I was re-listening to his Blueprint audio uh, the other day, and fee becomes an issue because you've not spent long enough building the relationship with the client. Mm. Mm. ultimately and the reason if you you can't build a relationship in just a month realistically you need years and years of building that relationship to make a strong foundation for your business so um uh, something that steven's a massive uh fan of is obviously scheduling everything in your diary so what gets scheduled gets done um, absolutely i'm exactly the same i just do not finish the day until I get through everything that's in my diary. You must, and if you say to someone, I'll come back to you tomorrow, I'll do, you know, a lot of people call us and say, can you have a look at the plans that I'm wanting to get approved for my house and let me know what you think, will it be saleable? Sometimes you're really flat out. I, ne I never say to people I'm flat out. I just say, oh, yes, I'd like to study that tonight. If it's okay with you, I'll call you tomorrow and I'll go through. I always make sure I call them the next day because you have to do what you're going to say you're going to do. If you don't, yeah. they lose respect for you, rightly so, you know. It's, it's, a lot of this is all about, it's about follow-up, having yeah. a diary and making, it's having a roadmap and knowing what you want to do every day. And then if you do it enough, you build up this huge database of people and the phone just keeps on ringing and there's people every day calling you for something else, you know? Yeah. So what does a typical start time on the day look like in Michael's world? So what, what, what time do you normally, yeah, so what typically, what time do you wake up? Oh, well, it depends. I sort of have broken sleep. So I go to bed between 10 and 11 at night and then I get up usually between two o'clock in the morning and four o'clock in the morning because I deal a lot with overseas people and then I'll deal with them a lot. I deal a lot with people from London. You wouldn't believe it. A lot of owners and a lot of buyers. And so then I'll deal with them between two o'clock and four o'clock and then I'll go back to bed and then I'll get up at say seven o'clock and then I'll do some exercise and then I just work through the day pretty much until... Oh, depending on the day, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, something like that. And then I'll often go out for a walk after that for an hour or two and then go to bed after that. So it's sort of a bit broken, a bit unusual in a lot of ways. And is that, got a very is good that, wife that puts up with that, it. <laughs> as, I'm, as, I'm sure, as I'm sure many, many wives have great husbands that support them as well. So, yes, um, yes. But, so is that typical of five days a week, six days a week, seven days a week? Uh, six, I tried to drop it back to six days a week because uh, seven. I used to do seven days. I sometimes still do seven days a week, but it gets very tiring seven days a week, you know? Okay. I did do um, it for a long time, seven days a week, but it's too much, you know? You've got to have one day off, haven't you? And yeah, absolutely. Abs abs you need that rest. Rest is just as in, just as important. So, um, Francis Egan, who's worked with me for a long time, who's phenomenal, he taught me a great word. The word is boundaries. When you're working with your team, just because I want to work those hours, I can't expect everyone in my team to work those hours. So I make sure I don't disturb them after hours because a lot of them have got families 
and I don't like to hassle them too much, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that's important when you work in a team. It's about boundaries and respect, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely, because I think it's just as important for your team to rest, to then come back and be effective during their time that they're at work. Um, yes. So, um, so, so in terms of what, what, what are Michael's non-negotiables? What are the things that you've got to do every day to be successful for you uh, and your team? Enough sleep, enough sleep and enough exercise. And eating the right food. I always eat healthy food. And I've never smoked yeah. a cigarette or never drunk alcohol. I'm an extremely disciplined person, but I don't, it's not intentional, it's just the way I am. So I know most people don't live their life like that and don't want to live their life like that. So I totally get that. But it just works for myself, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so something that um, we, we find over here is the frequency of contact with our clients. And it's probably something that the industry over here gets a really bad reputation for. And probably rightfully so is that agents list a property and then the common theme is that the owners or the vendors never hear from that agent until they want to reduce the price or they've got a viewing. How frequently would you be speaking to your vendors? Oh, yeah, well, that's a really good point, And that's really important if you want to keep a listing and keep a name. So I try to show the property twice a week, once midweek and once on a weekend on a Saturday normally. So that way, I can report back to my vendor after every inspection. So at least I'm in contact with them at least twice a week and I give them a call after the inspection and then I update them with an email also after every inspection. And I find if you do that, you don't lose, you don't lose touch with the owner and they, they understand what's happening. So I used to do it like every day. I used to keep in contact with my clients, but I found it was too much for them keeping in. They don't really need to hear from you every day. But I say to them, look, in our next inspections on Wednesday, I look forward to keeping you updated straight after the viewing. And then within sort of five minutes of finishing the open for inspection, I'm straight on the phone to them to update them. I find you have to be in touch with them at least twice a week to keep relevant and keep um, listing. It's got to have a flow. So that's why I like to do open for inspections. I don't know if people do that in the UK, but I think if you're selling someone's house, you've got to be getting someone through at least once a week through that property. Otherwise, the owner wonder what you're doing. Yeah, so open open for inspections. We we pre uh, the pandemic, we were doing open homes. So it's something we brought back. Not that it's yeah. something um, that is just unique to Australia or to the UK, but we started to do open homes where sometimes on a Saturday we'd get up to fifteen to twenty sets of people coming through a house, um, which which was great because it helps drive competition owners see that people on the street see that um it's it's more effective use of your time um but because of uh the safety procedures around obviously people mixing and getting people together then mm. we've had to knock open homes on the head so we have to do private viewings um at this moment in time and wipe down in between viewings etc and when do you think we'll get back to the point where you can do open homes again well, um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a bit mi the million dollar question. But so we had Freedom Day, which was where they were supposed to be relaxing all social distancing measures, which was due for the 21st of June, which was then extended for a further four weeks. So at the minute that that can's been kicked down the road till the uh, 19th of July. 
and right. as of yesterday they're still suggesting that it's still going to be the case but the 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 kind of caveat that they keep using is that if the data suggests that well given that there was over 20,000 infections yesterday perhaps the data doesn't suggest that but even with that information they're still suggesting that it can be relaxed but we'll, we'll see but again you, you can speculate on things I think uh, I think Tom Panos says this you just got to play the cards that you dealt with um, mm. at the moment in time you know how so, you had, you know had 20,000 um, cases yesterday in New South Wales where Sydney is I think we had 19 cases, 19, 1, 9, and we've gone into lockdown. <laughs> There's a big difference. There's a big difference, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah. But again, you, you've only got to look at the way that perhaps it, the situation has been controlled in Australia. You've had, apart from that initial uh, reaction that most of the world had in terms of COVID, then you've had relatively normal lives in terms of... Yes, what very much so. ...what you've been able to do. So um so um in, in terms of uh in terms of the the plans for michael and his team what 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 are the what are the projections and plans going forward where, where do you oh, see just, where do you keep, see things keep doing, just keep doing what we're doing the market's really good here in sydney and i think next year this year coming the next 12 months will be another very strong year it'll just continue see the interest rates are at a very low level they're the lowest level it's around two percent per annum to get a loan at the moment on a property and you can fix it for around three percent you can fix the rate for five years so wow. while ever the interest rates are so low uh, i think the property market will continue to be very attractive um, in Sydney, you don't pay any tax when you sell your property. There's no capital gains tax on your principal residence. Is it the same in England? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very attractive for people to buy a principal residence and buy the best house that they can to live in. And people will continue to do that. The interest rates are so low that it's very attractive for people to borrow. And a lot of people have made a lot of money during this pandemic. A lot of people in the um, uh, the internet industry. Have you heard of a thing called Afterpay in England? Uh, no, I personally haven't. No. no. Afterpay is like a payment system when you go for, to buy retail items. You pay nothing and you, you get the item and then you pay it back later. And I think if you pay within a certain time, you don't pay any interest on it. Well, that was set up by two young people in Sydney, and they're both billionaires now. They only set it up about two or three years ago. And the amount of money that's been generated from that business, people made money, money off it, and they put it into the property market. But there's so many of these startup internet businesses where people have made a fortune. I'm sure it would be the same in England. And the first thing that these young, smart people are doing is going and buying properties with it. So it's really propping the market up. And I think that will just continue. And these people are very wealthy now, these young people. That was around stuff. 10 years ago, you know. It's just created a whole new level of wealth. But the thing is, there's a great divide, isn't there, around the world. It's like they're super wealthy now, and then you've got a lot of people that are doing it tough. They haven't had a pay increase and all that kind of thing. So it's, um, it's the have and the have-nots is widening, which is not good for society, but that's just the way it is with the amount of money that's been made from the internet. I mean, the guy that um, created... Um, uh, Zoom. Yeah, I think someone told me yesterday he's a billionaire now too. You know, yeah. they're all these new billionaires. Well, it's become a household name, hasn't it? Now, Zoom uh, within yeah. the space of weeks, 
when when the pandemic hit and who would have thought people would have been running zoom sessions from their living rooms most people thought it was just business to business communication and now it's it's a it's a lot more than that and they've become essentially use like google people resort to to zoom don't they in the first instance so they've become the default go-to media there was a gentleman being interviewed on the television recently um he was he started out in canary wharf in london with a business um supplying um he was a food delivery business is it called Fudura? I think is the name of the company. And he was on this um, interview and he was saying that for the first 12 months, he was delivering the food himself because it wasn't around in London a few years ago. And he got the idea from America. He was a banker, a young banker. So he said he was going out delivering the food himself for the first 12 months. And he said it was a wonderful um, study of human nature. He said there were two things that he found. He dropped the food off and it was hot food and some people would slam the door in his face and he thought they were very rude. And then he realized that they wanted to eat their food while it was still hot. <laughs> and he said, and then you get the other ones. He said, there's a lot of lonely people in the world. And he said, then you get the other ones. You, op you They open the door and they invite you to come in and eat the food with them because they're that lonely. So he said, there's, there's like two different types of people in the world, you know, and he said he discovered that from doing that, the human nature, you know. And if you can study human nature and you're in sales and you can understand what a person's thinking, you can actually be very successful because you can give people what they want. And that's what it's all about. It's just giving them what they want, you know, and finding out what they do want. That's what sales is all about. Definitely. Look, Michael, thank you so much for your time. Just um, one, final, one final question for you. You mentioned Joe Verdi, you mentioned Zig Ziglar. Um, yes. Who else do you recommend that we should be listening to? And is there any good books that you've read or listened to that, again, think, you know, this is must, must, must have? I have never read this book, but I've heard a lot of people talk about it. It's an old book, but I think the human nature still stays the same. A lot of older clients have said to me, you need to read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, Dale, Dale Carnegie. Yeah, and there's another. If you want to keep your finances in order, I think that Rich Dad, Poor Dad's a very good book too. It's about yeah. knowing what to invest in. I've seen a lot of real estate agents that have made very good money but have very little at the end of it because they just haven't invested it wisely. And I'm a big believer in investing your money in real estate. And if you can do that, um, I try and buy a property a year and I've done that for many years and I've kept them. I haven't sold them. And it gets to the point where you just, you've got that many, so much rent coming and you don't have to work anymore if you didn't want to. So I think if a young, if I was a young agent, I'd be trying to buy a flat every year if I could, or every two years, as much as I could afford. And I think that's a wonderful investment strategy, you know, and borrow up and get the tenant to pay the um, rent. And you just can't go wrong with that. So I think it's, if you can just study human nature and looking after people and making sure people are comfortable so that they'll come back and you do more business with them and then the money will roll in and when that money rolls in you've got to know what to do with it and i think if you're a property person you should invest back in property again now i think if you follow that strategy and you're in it for long enough it's a wonderful wonderful industry and you just can't go wrong brilliant absolutely um I've got pages and pages of notes and I'm sure our listeners, e even if it's not live, when it goes out on the podcast, uh, are going to get a wealth of information on this. It's been uh, it's been absolutely enlightening. And 
just just to finish up, um, I think there's uh, you, you touched on uh, about uh, when it comes to maybe customers or even when you try and screw suppliers down to the last cent or the last penny on on a deal. Um, I think everyone uh, with that in mind should listen to the latest high performance podcast with Chris Voss, the FBI negotiator, because again, it, if if by screwing that supplier or that uh, customer down up to the last penny, is that going to create a long term relationship that's not going to end up bitter? Um, you've got to have that in the back of your mind. Again, it comes back to the from the outset where you talked about having long-term relationships and I think Chris articulates that particularly well in that high performance podcast so it's well worth having a look at I know it's one of our favorites on the show uh, as well but Michael it's been a real pleasure we appreciate taking up your personal time um, and we will let you uh, let you go um, safely back to your home um, and hopefully one day in the future whenever that will be in Australia opens its borders um, we will be looking you up to come and say hello. Um, oh, we'd love to see you. I've enjoyed every minute of it. You know, there's a really strong, I know we've always had a strong relationship, but, you know, the Australian government and the English government are very, very strong at the moment because of um, the Brexit breaking up. Yeah. And uh, we've made it, the Australian government's aligned with the UK government and we've got a new deal where they're not charging... Um, Tariffs. Um, taxes, tariffs, yeah. yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it couldn't be a stronger bond, could it, you know, between the two no. countries, which is terrific. No, no ab absolutely, absolutely. So thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure and stay safe. Thank you, Michael. Great to speak. Thanks very much, everyone. Lovely to speak. Cheers.